listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 260. This is part three in our series on the long-term impacts of the pandemic. We'll be talking to two retail workers about their experiences during the pandemic and how they want to move forward as the retail sector shifts back towards something resembling normalcy. Before we get started, we'd like to pause and thank everyone who has donated to us over the past nine years of bringing you labor news and views from around the world. Labor journalism is not dead, but it is still not exactly a growth industry, so we count on what all of you can kick in to keep us going. We've made it a point to never paywall anything so that all of our work is accessible to everybody that we interview and talk about whether or not they can afford to pay. So if you happen to have some spare money, it really does help us if you can go to patreon.com slash belabored and sign up to be a monthly supporter of our work. And if you work at an organization that would like to sponsor a future belabored series, you can contact us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Thank you for keeping us afloat. And now the news. The World Cup kicked off this week in the middle of a desert amid a hailstorm of criticism and controversy directed at FIFA and the government of Qatar. Much of the controversy surrounds the reportedly amazingly corrupt process by which the tiny Gulf oil state was selected to host the tournament in the first place. But an ongoing scandal has been the number of deaths and injuries suffered by migrant workers who were brought into the country to help build the fancy stadiums for the event. Most of these construction workers were from South Asia or Africa, and the conditions of the manual labor that they did on these desert building sites are thought to be so grueling that several thousand have died over the course of several years. A new report by the human rights organization Equidem details the brutal working conditions that migrant workers suffered, including those who didn't die but nonetheless experienced coercive, exploitative, and often dangerous situations in which their employers could retaliate against them and threaten them with deportation if they spoke out. All this was happening under FIFA's watch, signaling that the organization was turning a blind eye to labor abuses, even as it claimed to be enforcing international standards. Equidem writes, quote, practices included illegal recruitment charges, nationality-based discrimination, unpaid wages, working in extreme heat and other health and safety risks, overwork and workplace violence. Some of these practices were used by World Cup construction firms to create a captive and controllable workforce and amount to forced labor indicators as defined under international standards, unquote. Although there was a protocol in place for auditing work sites for the FIFA stadiums, a Nepalese construction worker told Equidem researchers, quote, nothing changed after FIFA visits. The first few days they talked as if they were going to make real changes, but nothing really happened, unquote. According to surveys conducted by Equidem, 28 out of 60 workers reported nationality-based discrimination, 12 out of 60 workers experienced retaliation for rights violations, 60 out of 60 workers described paying illegal recruitment fees, 9 out of 60 workers reported unpaid wages and benefits. At several construction sites, Equidem found that the labor violations ranged from physical assault to unsanitary conditions in worker housing. Some workers reported that migrant workers from Asia or Africa would routinely get, quote, the hardest jobs, longest hours, and the least pay, unquote, compared to their Arab peers. One worker from Kenya said that, quote, supervisors would hit us in front of the other workers to pressure us to work faster and complete our work on time, unquote. Workers also reported paying extortionate recruitment fees and going into debt in order to secure a job in Qatar and being exposed to extreme heat and cold at their work sites, as well as COVID-19, without adequate protective gear. 
The report calls on government and corporate actors involved in the FIFA stadium construction to make a full accounting of wage theft, forced labor, safety violations, and other labor issues, to compensate workers for labor violations, and to, quote, recognize the freedom of association and workers' right to join or form a trade union, irrespective of nationality, identity, or background, unquote. That last one is a pretty ambitious demand, considering how migrant labor works in Qatar. The Qatari government has come under growing international scrutiny, though, for its exploitative, highly restrictive guest worker scheme, known as the kafala system, which legally tethers workers to their employer so that they cannot leave without potentially losing their legal status. There have been some reforms to migrant labor laws in recent years, which make it easier to change jobs for some workers. However, Qatar seems unlikely to make any significant changes to the migrant labor system that it has profited from so tremendously. And so far, it looks like the World Cup has turned out to be fairly good for the country's PR on an international level. So the government is probably not going to see any massive diplomatic consequences for its labor practices. Equidem also believes that there needs to be some accountability for FIFA and the sponsors of the World Cup, which have effectively endorsed these labor practices by organizing these games in the first place. It's no secret that Qatar has an authoritarian government, so why would the workers be given any kind of democratic rights when they are systematically relegated to second-class citizenship in a country in which even first-class citizens face severe restrictions on their civil liberties? There is a new union in my neck of the woods. Well, in the South, anyway. The campaign formerly known as Raise Up, the southern state's branch of the Fight for 15, has announced that it is forming the Union of Southern Service Workers. Belabored listeners and dissent readers might recognize some of the people who were part of the launch. Jamila Allen made an appearance telling us about working at Freddy's, a local fast food chain in North Carolina, and going on strike over pandemic conditions in our belabored stories. The union is launching in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama, and is open to fast food, retail, warehouse, care, and other service industry workers who are putting up with low wages and lousy working conditions. The workers held a Southern Workers Summit last week to launch the union, which specifically focuses on the issues that black and brown workers face organizing in a part of the country that has labor laws designed particularly to exclude workers of color. The workers' list of demands includes, quote, a seat at the table to make decisions about working conditions, establish corporate accountability for treatment of workers, and respect workers' right to organize free of retaliation, fair pay and an end to wage theft across the industry, dignity and equal treatment, including equal pay for all workers, protection from discrimination and harassment, and more, health and safety through health care benefits, sick leave, and safe workplace protections and equipment, fair and consistent scheduling, including the ability to work full-time hours with safe staffing levels and regular weekly schedules. It will be interesting to see what this union is going to shape up to look like, more like Starbucks Workers United, which is, like this one, under the SEIU umbrella, with worker-led campaigns winning unions shop by shop, or perhaps some inspiration from United Campus Workers, which is part of CWA, which organizes wall-to-wall unions on university campuses across the South. The move to something that they are officially calling a union indicates a step forward and a change from the minority unionism of the Fight for 15 and the inclusion of multiple sectors, care workers alongside retail and food service and warehouses, might make it harder to win NLRB elections. But in any case, we will all be eagerly watching to see what happens. The threat of a railroad strike is looming large once again. After months of negotiations and voting on tentative agreements for a dozen railroad unions, the largest union representing train conductors, the Transportation Division of the Sheet Metal Air Rail Transportation Union, or SMART TD, has rejected the tentative agreement that union leaders had hammered out with rail carriers back in September. Another union, 
BLET, which represents engineers, voted narrowly to approve the tentative agreement. These two unions were the last holdouts out of all the railroad worker unions, which have voted on similar tentative agreements in recent months. Some have approved their tentative deals and others rejected them, which has triggered more rounds of talks with carriers. The BLET and Smart TD members were voting on a proposal that was more or less a carbon copy of the recommendations of a special emergency board commissioned by the Biden administration last summer. That agreement offered substantial wage increases, including a 24% pay raise over the course of the contract. But the proposal largely failed to address major issues with work schedules and paid time off. And that left many rank-and-file members of SMART and BLET bitter about a negotiation process that seemed increasingly rigged in favor of the rail carriers. As we've reported on Belabored before, conductors and engineers have long complained of volatile on-call schedules that leave them without predictable work hours, force them to spend days at a time away from home, and make it nearly impossible to plan ahead around medical or family issues. The Department of Labor in the negotiations in September with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh trying to push both parties toward an agreement. But this latest vote shows that workers' frustrations with the scheduling system and the extremely stressful working conditions were still pretty much ignored in that tentative agreement. According to CNN, just over 53% of the engineers voted to approve the agreement, but the other vote, quote, was a very slim defeat by the conductors with either a small majority or a near majority voting for ratification. The conductors' vote ultimately failed because the union's rules require each of five classes of workers within the union to approve the deal for it to pass, unquote. One subset of the smart members, the yardmasters, did approve the agreement, but just over half of the train and engine service members rejected it. Many of the scheduling and workload problems that workers have struggled with in the industry are the result of a shift in the way carriers operate under a concept known as precision scheduled railroading, or PSR. PSR applies the just-in-time concept of neoliberal industrial production to the railways, focusing on moving freight as efficiently as possible with constantly changing and unpredictable schedules. Railroad Workers United, a rank-and-file grassroots group that organizes workers across all of the railroad unions, issued a statement on Monday after the last two vote results were released, warning that, quote, without a better contract for all railroad crafts, service will continue to suffer as rail carriers extract wealth and buy back their shares at the expense of the economy as a whole. Their systems, which were primarily built on public investment, no longer work for the benefit of the people. If rail carriers are fixated on paying out more for stock buybacks than they are for worker benefits, we will continue to see attrition as a once-stable career turns into a revolving-door job, unquote. The railroad workforce has shrunk considerably just over the past couple of decades, which of course only intensifies the burden on the workers who remain on trains that they say are severely understaffed. Now, it's not certain that there will be a strike. The unions and carriers will go back to the table and see if they can come up with a new tentative agreement by December 8th. But failing that, a strike could happen as early as the morning of December 9th. In the long run, it appears that as long as PSR is the industry standard, the railroads will continue to lose workers and those who remain will continue to face growing hardships as they struggle with unsustainable schedules. RWU has reiterated its call for a full public takeover of the railroads in hopes that a government-run railroad infrastructure would remove the profiteering and exploitation that the country's oligopoly of rail carriers has promoted. Such a vision for radical change in the industry is way out on the horizon, but these latest votes show that workers on the ground aren't going to stand for the status quo any longer. 
The strike season continues in Britain, with nurses across Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and much of England voting to authorize a strike for the first time in the 106-year history of the Royal College of Nursing. Scottish civil service workers, ambulance drivers, and teachers have voted to strike. Bus drivers around England, oil refinery workers, and many, many more are or will be on the picket lines soon. The RMT, who you heard from here earlier this summer, renewed its rail strike mandate for another six months. And the CWU postal workers also renewed their strike mandate with a 91% vote. And both unions had resumed talks with their employers. But the British labor story I wanted to bring you today is good news specifically for some of our recent guests. The dock workers at Liverpool's port have ended their strikes after winning pay increases between 14 and 18% plus, depending on job grade. The workers overwhelmingly voted in favor of the deal and to call off their escalating strikes. Unite, the union, which represents these workers, put out a release also crediting their Strikes Plus strategy, which includes, quote, forensic accountants and economists to pour over complex and opaque company finances to hold firms to account. Leverage strategies implemented to identify and target hidden company decision makers have also become integral to fighting disputes, end quote. When I talked with the dock workers back in September, and when I visited the ports shortly thereafter, the port workers were being asked to take below-inflation pay rises while the private port company was making massive profits. The workers were considered essential workers and had worked throughout the pandemic, many of them getting ill with COVID, and like so many other workers around the country, they have had enough. Port workers, as of course you have heard on this show over and over again, have a particular kind of leverage because so much of the stuff we consume goes in and out through our ports, particularly in countries that are net importers like Britain, and particularly when we're heading into the holiday season and people want to be going shopping. But also this is happening during an ongoing cost of living crisis in Britain where employers have been holding on to profits and workers are struggling to survive. And considering that free ports, or special economic zones that have different legal conditions from the rest of the country, are part of the Conservative Party's ongoing economic strategy, whoever the heck the Prime Minister is this week, it is important for the unions to maintain strength in the ports. We have no word at this time if the leader of the Labour Party has had anything to say about this after the dock workers marched on him at conference and effectively called him a scab. But, you know, here's Starmer if you're listening. Let us know. We'd love to talk. This episode is coming to you the week of Thanksgiving in the U.S., a holiday that signals a lot more work for a lot of retail and grocery store workers across the country as it kicks off the holiday shopping season with Black Friday. We decided to talk to an old friend of the show, Cynthia Murray, who is one of the founding members of what used to be known as Our Walmart and is now United for Respect. Cynthia is still working at Walmart and still working to change it, and Walmart workers have had a particularly hard fight on their hands to be treated decently through the pandemic. We talk about all that and more. We recorded this conversation before a longtime Walmart manager opened fire on his co-workers in the break room at a Chesapeake, Virginia Walmart the day before Thanksgiving, killing six people. Lorenzo Gamble, Brian Pendleton, Kelly Pyle, Randall Blevins, Tanika Johnson, and a 16-year-old boy whose name was withheld because of his age. In response to the shooting, United for Respect member and Walmart associate Tanika Hightower released a statement saying, in part, Quote, for too many Walmart associates across the country, clocking in to work at Walmart is fatal because the stores they work at are unsafe, the conditions unhealthy, and the executives they work for have not taken any meaningful action to protect them. Following last night's tragedy, Walmart executives have been quick to offer thoughts, prayers, and empty sentiments of support for associates, but slow to offer any real changes that will ensure workers' health and safety. 
Going to work to support your family should not be a death sentence. We are more than associates. We are people who matter. End quote. While we didn't get to discuss this incident with Cynthia, much of what we did discuss covers these same issues. Can I have you start out, Cindy, by introducing yourself to our listeners who haven't uh, talked to you as much as I have? Well, hello, everyone. My name is Cynthia Murray. I am a 22-year current Walmart associate in Laurel, Maryland, and a founding member of United for Respect, which is UFR. I work in the fitting room, which I answer all the calls that come into the building. I help take care of the customers that are in the fitting room that come and try on their clothes. And, you know, um, most of us are like a family at Walmart, us workers that work there together. So we usually help each other. And that's what I do for Walmart. I've been there 22 years. But I have been active in trying to help Walmart workers across the country. Together, we build an organization, United for Respect, and we have helped workers across the country, especially a hard time for us during the pandemic in the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about like what it was like at during, I mean, the pandemic's not over, but I guess um, let's go back to the beginning and sort of what was it like working there? when things first hit? Uh, It was really difficult. Um, But as I said, we workers are like a family to each other. And so when the pandemic did hit, we looked out for each other. I feel so our company and a lot of other companies had dropped the ball as far as taking care of workers, as far as safety issues for health, like PPE, and different things like that. And it was workers helping each other. Like we would give each other mask, hand sanitizer, gloves. And for us to have to give each other those materials for each other was great because we're like a family, but our company should have picked up on that immediate, not just to protect us, but also our community. You know, they have to shop there as well. And, you know, there was never any six feet apart. Um, It should have. It should have happened long before they took part in it, along with, like, our bathroom in the back. Our hot water were broke. Where you get soap out of the thing to wash your hands, that was broke. The hot water in the break room was broke. And to me at that time, That was something that was very important for hygiene, you know, to try to stop the spread of COVID to each other and even into our community for our customers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did folks that you worked with get sick? Did you get COVID? I did get sick. Yeah. And a lot of our workers had got sick. But, you know, Walmart told us that You couldn't become sick from each other unless you were in the presence of each other for 15 minutes, which still today, I don't believe that. So they find herself not wanting to tell us, like, you know, the girl that's in the department next to me got COVID, you know, like, oh, well, she wasn't around you for 15 minutes. And I'm like, oh, well, she's in the same vicinity, in the same store, like in the break room, you're in the bathroom. So to me, that was really lame thinking 
I think that they took down the shields too soon. Like they took down our plastic shields. It took them forever to put in place for the cashiers. And like at the pharmacy, especially, I think those things should be kept up there still. I don't believe that we are out of this pandemic. And, you know, here comes the winter season again. And I mean, so we all know that it's going to mutate into different things. So why not have left those types of things in place still? I mean, yes, I hope that we get into a better place where those can go away. But I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Yeah, I guess tell me how the pandemic has affected the organizing that United for Respect is doing. Well, actually, it was us who put up a COVID tracker. We had placed in, in, on our website because we're an online to offline organization. So we do use the internet as well to organize with. But so it was nothing that they thought of. We did. We put up a COVID tracker so that workers across the country could put in their state and they could, you know, basically let people know like, hey, we have an outbreak here going on, you know, or this many workers have been sick. And I think this was a way to really let us know for each other, like, you know, maybe we need to take extra precaution. You know, I don't know how much more extra we could do, but you know, those were things that we did with our organization. And yes, it makes it hard because at this point, we really don't want to be like going state to state, you know, interacting when we know that we can actually spread COVID, you know, and endanger our workers. So we don't want to do that to each other. So actually, the internet became even a bigger toll for us because there we're safe. I mean, we don't have to worry about hey, I could cough on this person or be around this person and make them sick. It did make it a little harder and a little more stressful. But at the same time, I think it was a good tool for workers because they could get online. And during this COVID, you know, we all haven't really took a hard look at how mentally this has affected workers. I mean, you're isolated, you become sick. And you could see it in the customers. When COVID really hit, and it hit hard then at that point, you could see it in, in our community. You could see it in the customer's face. You could see it in the worker's face. And it's like, oh, my goodness, are we really going to get through this together? I mean, I know we did, and we're still fighting it. But it was really rough. It still is because... Workers are still becoming sick now in the community in this RSV. It's a respiratory infection that the kids are getting, the younger kids. And right now, Children's Hospital is at capacity. My goodness, I hadn't even heard of that. Um, yeah, I, I understand you introduced a shareholder resolution this year calling for a pandemic workforce advisory council at Walmart. Can you tell us about that? Yes. And... We truly need to be on the board. They need to take workers, ordinary workers like me and other workers that have like the same as I am. You take us and put us on the board, not just one of us, a few of us, so that we can work 
with the other board members that are at Walmart. And this could be a good thing. We're on the store level. Like when we seen the pandemic hit, it took too long for Walmart to react in other companies. It took them too long. If we had an advisory pandemic board and not just for COVID, because there's other things that are going to happen. I mean, this is a time that we could help say, hey, look, this is what needs to be done in stores. They need masks. They need gloves. They need sanitizers. We need shields. We need the hot water that is fixed that doesn't work in the bathroom or in the break room. These are things that need to be looked after is our health and our safety. And with this task force, that's what we would do. We would be able to look into different stores and, you know, even the stores that we come from and say, well, hey, you know, this isn't working. Why don't we try A, Y, and Z and see if this works better to protect not just the workers, but our communities. And in protecting our communities and our workers, it's going to make it easier for us to go through something like COVID, you know, together. And I mean, I really do feel they dropped the ball. We don't have sick days that workers can really take. We need Walmart and other companies to have a sick policy where workers can have 14 days a year to be sick. If I come down with COVID, I don't care what they say. In five days, you're not getting rid of it. In five days, I do not feel that you are healthy enough to go back into that work environment and into your community. You know, I mean, your resistance is low. What are you going to give to other people? What are you going to catch more? How, how more sick will you become? So these are the things that the pandemic task force would be able to look out for in, you know, be able to build on that to make a better environment for all of us. And yes, here in Maryland, they say that we're supposed to have five sick days a year. Walmart doesn't provide those for us. You know, they say, oh, you know, we'll point you out. And what a point is, is say I'm, I'm sick and I take that day off. If I don't have protected time, which they take out of our PTO time, only a little, we only generate that at such a low rate that you will never be able to generate enough hours to be able to be sick. Uh, you know, your parents or your children or your spouse, whoever may become sick, even yourself, you have to have enough time in order to get yourself back healthy. And if you're going to point me in giving us points, in five points, you're terminated. How is that fair? Every day that you take off is a point if you don't have protected time. And Walmart does not generate us enough protected time for any worker to be off enough time to be sick to get healthy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you've been there for 22 years. You would think that uh, you'd accrue some paid time off by now? Well, what they do is they now lumped all our stuff to a PTO. In our protected time, they take out of the PTO time. 
So it's not even separate. Separate. So it's like you, we get in this one pot. It's supposed to be your vacation time, your sick time. Come on. These workers work hard. And, you know, they're not being appreciated. We were considered frontline workers. We have always been frontline workers. And they need to be appreciated as frontline workers. We are making billions for our company. They could give back. Instead of giving back, they just keep taking. And that's why I think it's so important that we build a board and we build a bridge with Walmart. That they have to come to the table and really look at their workers in their face. And understand that, you know, hey, you go home at the end of the day. You become sick. You're not worried about being fired. You're not worried about being able to pay your rent because you have something to back you up where everyday workers do not. And we have to fill this gap and it's needed to be filled. It's way past time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know that, well, that more than one Walmart workers have died of COVID or on the job recently. I um, wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and just knowing what's happened to people and the company's reaction. Well, the company doesn't really want to talk about workers becoming sick with COVID, let alone to let you know that any of them have passed from COVID. So it's really hard, you know, that you find out later down the road that, you know, this worker had COVID and he was next to you and he passed away from COVID. You know, they could do a whole lot better for us than that. So, I mean, and what about their family? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the sort of supply chain issues that we've been seeing in the last year, too, like the, that's also obviously related to COVID, but how has that affected your store? Well, it has. Um, the different items that, well, of course, we know the Lysol was really hard. You know, different things like that. So we are, the community in us are affected by the fact of like the supply chain. But again, those two were sick. And so when we always say if we can change things for Walmart, we can change it for everyone. And it's true. Because I mean, not just us. They needed protection, PPE and other things. But that's why it got so hard for our supply chain. And then the workers that aren't there, you got one worker doing four or five jobs. And I mean, that also wears them down. And then at the same time, they're being yelled at. And you didn't get this done and you didn't get that done. There's no way that you can. Yeah. And so I do still see our supply chain being affected because of COVID, still today. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure there's, I mean, there's all sorts of problems with getting all sorts of things from around the world every time uh, you hear, right, there's another outbreak in China, and then you realize, oh, a lot of the stuff that we put on the store, the shelves at Walmart come from there. Yes, so many of them. I mean, it's like things that you don't, you know, we all have taken for granted, you know, walk in and buy some, uh, you know, Clorox wipes or some Lysol spray or, you know, things just to clean every day in your home. And it's like, 
okay, you better get that now and you better get an extra one <laughs> just in case because you really can't say like the customer would be like, well, can you tell me when that'll be in? And I'm like, no. I mean, I'm just being yeah. honest. Yeah. Like, no, we don't. It's up to the supply chain. You know, and, and all, all of us in every walk of life have become sick because of COVID. And I don't think our whole world had a handle on what they were looking at when COVID hit us. All the companies dropped the ball on what they could have done to help workers. And I think that's why the supply chain and everything is the way that it is right now. Because the people with, that were making the, the billions, they didn't stop to say, you know, let's do this a little different. You know, maybe these workers need this. Or maybe we could do this a little better to help them. Sick time, insurance, and workers having something to fall back on is what our country should be. And we need to go back to taking care of the people that make our country go around. And that's the workers. And until we get the billionaires to stop taking in all the money and not giving back into their communities and into their stores, we're going to continue to have problems. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, that question of being essential workers, right? And in the early days, there were all of these, you know, thank you, essential workers and applause and talking about you being heroes and all of that. And then it's kind of just gone away. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it, it has just, it's gone. Like they've taken the shields down. They've stopped giving people masks, which I think it's, I think they should still have. I see people that come into our store and you think about it. They're coming to the pharmacy. They need to come get their medication because they're sick. But at the same time, if they don't come in with a mask and ask for one, you don't even have one to give them. I mean, you see how many people are still sick and are still becoming sick? So this is what our board, that's what the pandemic board would do. It would still look hard at the situation and how it's going and what we still really truly need. Yeah, with all these, um, all this talk about the sort of great resignation and people quitting their jobs and things like that, have you seen a lot of turnover at the Walmart where you work? Yes, but Walmart's always had a high turnover rate. That's true. Always. You think it's been more than than usual? Yes. I. It's really has become. I don't even have the right word for it. It really has become hard. When COVID hit, you know, a lot of workers became sick. I mean, and they were sick. I got sick. I was sick for almost a month. And, you know, I don't think I'm that unhealthy. And so for me to stay sick that long, and I mean, even the younger ones that become sick, even people with not with um, high health risk, you know, I worried every day that I would come home and bring it to my son or my husband. And I think the high turnover rate right now is hard to get people there. I think workers are, first of all, what do they have? Walmart isn't offering them anything. I mean, you don't even have a backup plan if you get sick. I mean, and then making billions, come on. 
people are looking for a job that are going to sustain them. We're frontline workers. We're always going to be needed because who else is going to put out the product that comes? If we can't, if we don't have enough workers to put it out, how do they sell to their customers in their community? They can't. You can't sell it out the back room unless it's through the internet. And some people don't have that type of access where they can go to the internet and just order whatever it is that, that you couldn't find in the store. There's a whole lot of people that come in the store and they would rather be in a store shopping than having to order online where some people just don't. And I think the reason we can't keep workers is a positive thing is because we have no benefits to offer them. I work for a billion dollar company, a 22 year Walmart associate. I only make $16.90 an hour after 22 years. They should be ashamed of themselves. So, I mean, if they stop to look at that, that's their bottom line. You have nothing to offer your workers. And, and then they're not treated the best that they, I mean, come on, they're overworked because there's hardly any workers. It got to be fixed. And the only persons that can fix it is the people who are holding the wealth and not putting it back into their stores. Yeah. So I, I wanted to sort of ask you to wrap up, like what would be different about Walmart and about this country if we actually treated retail workers like they were essential? If they really treated workers like they were essential workers, our country and our economy would be able to go better. It would be able to turn because these workers that are essential workers they also need to be able to buy, like to be able to buy just food. I mean, or be able to pay for a co-payment for a medical treatment. How different that would look in our world. If I went to work and I was being paid $25 an hour in 14 days, sick day a year, and that when I become sick and I go to my doctor's, and he fills out that doctor's note and says, hey, she's too sick to come in there. Did they accept that? So easy solutions that they could fix. But it is up to them to stop taking all the billions and putting it back into the company and for their essential workers. Our country would be able to thrive better than it is right now. So last question, um, we're recording this ahead of time, but um, it's going to be released on the week of uh, Black Friday. And um, so I have to sort of ask about Black Friday, what that means this year, what that's meant during the pandemic, these kind of, oh my God, everybody goes shopping days. Well, you know, Walmart had opened up on Thanksgiving the last year. In this year, they're going to close their doors, which is, we all know, is a good move, not just for the associates, but also for the money that Walmart will take in. I believe that people are still going to come out and shop. I mean, oh my God, this week, shopping was off the chain for people. Most of them are buying essential because them too, they're not, they don't have the money. I mean, I see people buying 
paper, green chemical stuff, groceries, basic needs and clothing. Do I think that they will come shop? Yes, I do. Because there's things that they can find on Black Friday that will cost them half the price on Black Friday that it would cost them on a normal day. But if the workers don't have the money, then they'll be flat on their sales again. And I think a lot of workers in our country right now are having a really hard time with that, with having the money to be able to buy. Yeah, I guess uh, it's, it's frustrating. It's nice to talk to you again. It's frustrating how little has changed since the first time we spoke way back in, I think, 2012. It's been 10 years. Yes. I know. We still out here fighting that fight. We're going to keep fighting for workers. They need, they need to have a voice at the table. And they need to have a voice stronger than they have right now in our Congress with all our senators. And we need them all to stand with workers across the country, especially essential workers. And, you know, when I say essential, it's not just the stores. What about our truck drivers? You know, sometimes people don't mention them and the other people that are in our warehouses. But we have to know that they too have taken a blunt during COVID. You know, they've taken a hard hit too. So that's why our economy, we have to raise up our workers. We have to do this because they have to be able, if we can't pay them good wages, how will we make the economy go around? And Walmart is one of the biggest ones that could do better by their workers. I think all our wages need to go up. Cost of living has gone up tremendously. So when do we, the people that are on the front line, when do they have a voice? That was Cynthia Murray, founding member of United for Respect and Walmart Worker. Another chain of stores that saw a lot of struggles during the pandemic was Kroger, the grocery store chain in the middle of a mega merger, and perhaps best known to belabored listeners for having yanked back pandemic pay from its heroes. I spoke with Lisa Harris, who works at Kroger and is a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 400. Hi, I'm uh, Lisa Harris, and I work for Kroger 515 Atley Road in Richmond, Virginia. I have been working there, well, with Kroger, 15 years. Uh-huh. With that store, about seven. So you've certainly been at the company long enough to tell us about how it changed when COVID hit. Yes. Um, it, it was a nightmare. And my personal feeling was one of heartache watching my fellow co-workers deal with it. Um, I personally don't, I'm fairly young, mm-hmm. I'm fairly healthy, but my, I live with another person who has to meet with the public. The worry of bringing it home to your family members was palpable among all of us. I personally serve at least 300 people every single day. So you never know which person is going to give you something that may be fatal. We were tasked with 
making sure everything was clean and sanitary for our customers, which was more than our normal duties. Also, the reaction to Kro- by Kroger uh, was a disappointing one. At the beginning, it felt as if they were grateful that we would still be serving our community and uh, signs would come up saying, thank you for everything you do. And customers would be thanking you for everything you do, which mm-hmm. lasted way long after Kroger stopped with Hero Pay. Um, mm-hmm. Hero Pay only lasted a few months. Um, when yeah. someone would contract Kroger, they would deep clean, quote unquote, the entire area, but we were not informed as to if we needed to get ourselves tested. The deep clean that we witnessed was not a thorough one. And it kind of shows uh, with actions rather than words uh, what was important to the company at that point. And we were also aware that our sales had not gone down since 2019. Therefore, where was the money going if not to our hero pay? You are shown that you are not valuable and dispensable to the to the company. Um, yeah. Also, our youngest members, ones that were in college or still in high school even, were put at doors to remind customers to wear masks, knowing that in other states, people who were doing that job had been shot or verbally abused by customers and they were given nothing but a walkie-talkie to communicate with management. Did you have um, any incidents at, at the store? Was anybody We, we had or? several. Um, the one that sticks out to me the most oh. that I witnessed was a customer yelling at another customer due to, it was just an atmosphere of hostility in general. But what made me very sad was that when they were given walkie-talkies at the doors, management would not respond to their calls. Mm. We were told by our union to alert management every time we saw someone in the store without a mask. So I took that upon myself to page management whenever there was someone in my area without a mask. And... The response I got back over the walkie-talkie was, oh, well, he's just one of our regulars. Oh, well, she shops here all the time. And I don't know how the response would be if there was anything else that was life-threatening, if it would be met with such ambivalence. Mm, Yeah, that's such a good point. Also, the holidays... We knew we were going to be stressful, yeah. but they also rolled out decisions to create a new system of measuring our time as far as uh, punching in and punching out our scheduling system. How does that work? It is run through an app now that you can get on your phone. Uh-huh. You can also access it through the computers in the store not just our physical time clock anymore. And that was another reminder that they had money to do other projects, just not pay us hero pay during this time. I would think you wouldn't want your boss's app on your phone all the time. Yes. um, (laughs) You never know the security on those things, right? It's true. Um, Also, 
they announced decisions to remodel the store as well, which mm-hmm. is um, a lot of stress. We were hemorrhaging associates. People did not want to be in that environment for yeah. eight hours a day for that much pay, which put more stress on those of us that have been there a long time, mm-hmm. earned seniority. The extra workload fell on us. And I mean, our workload did not go down during these times. People, you know, you were hearing all around you in the media of how bored people are staying at home. And Mm -hmm. we did not have that luxury. We we were there serving our community through all of it. Well, also with with people getting bored at home, like, did they, did it feel like they were taking that out on you? Like, not necessarily even in bad ways, right? But just people who are lonely being your maybe the only person they've talked to all week. There was a temperature of just frustration in general. We are trained, whether it is by our company or by ourselves, when you do face-to-face customer service, to not take things personally, to realize that someone is going through their own struggles and you may just have got them at a wrong time. Maybe they are frustrated with your company, not with you personally. Maybe they're frustrated with something you have no idea about and you excuse those things. But no matter how much therapy you take, you are going to have to deal with the mounting amounts of that when everyone is going through their own struggle. And the thank you from our company was there in words, but not in deeds. Right. So the, the hero pay was, it was $2 an hour extra, right? Yes. And that lasted for a couple of months and then they stopped it, right? Yes. Which to put that in perspective, there are people that say minimum wage should be $15 an hour across the board. I have been with Kroger for 15 years. I am making less than that. That hero pay put me just able to break even with my bills. And then it was taken away. And the company's profits just kept going up. Kept going up. They have seen no dip. In fact, they have been able to roll out a program of uh, home delivery at this point. And... Those that are working inside the store worry about the future of the grocery industry, whether it will eventually just be a delivery station or a warehouse where we deliver from, because those inside the store are not being treated well and leaving in droves. If people want to have a face-to-face customer service experience in their grocery store, they need to encourage their grocery store managers and companies to treat their employees well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've heard a lot in the last year about the great resignation, but um, very few people are going out there and asking the workers, why, why might people quit? I would think 15 years and less than $15 an hour would be a good reason why people would get sick of working somewhere. It frustrates me that that phenomenon is written off as, oh, young kids just do not want to work. Do they not want to work or do they know what a living wage is and can Google that and realize this isn't it? I care about my company. I care about my 
my associates. I care about my union. I care about my customers. I want to stay. I want to work, but they are making it untenable for me. In terms of like supply chain issues that have been happening all over Mm. the place, how has that affected Kroger? Have you guys had problems getting certain items? Has that made things more difficult? It has. And it is the ultimate feeling of disempowerment when you have to tell a customer, I just don't know when that is going to be in. To see the shelves as bare as they got was disheartening. I think they, they are doing better at this point. However, the prices, signage and tags that are reflecting the correct price may not be happening at this point because there are so few associates to hang tags. We have a handful of people hanging tags for a huge Walmart sized store. So they may or may not get to the product that you're looking at, which it gets confusing when you're trying to tabulate how much you need to be spending at the grocery store. When the tag says one thing and you get to the cashier and Mm -hmm. it's a different thing in our system, putting us in a position where we look like we personally are victimizing the customer by changing the prices. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you have to deal with more anger and more frustration. Yes. And we are expected to be the professional in that situation. What people don't seem to understand is it is not just the person who is checking you out. There is a whole system that makes a grocery store run. That system is slowly being eroded. And your cashier is not going to have answers for you as to why something is not there, why the price is showing up in a different way, why corporate is making the decisions they're making. Um, But they are expected to be the face of the company and maintain composure when asked those questions. Right. And I bet with all of that and then it being Thanksgiving week and holiday shopping and all of this stuff that it's just... Yes, more stress. Thanksgiving week is the most stressful week of the year for a grocery store store employee. You know what you're getting into when the week starts. You are not. We have what we call queuing at Kroger which means there are not supposed to be more than a certain number of people in each line. And if there are, we redirect them to a new line. During the week of Thanksgiving, that is not possible to maintain. There will be lines and there will be lines close to approaching the beginning of your aisles of groceries. And I would emotionally and mentally prepare yourself for that if you're shopping this holiday season, because not only do we have less associates to help you out, we have less baggers to carry your things to the car. We have less people to be cleaning the store when a spill or something happens. We have less people to take items back to the shelves if you decide that you do not want them. And it is an endurance test. You're standing on your feet on concrete for eight and a half hours, making these lines keep moving. And there are times when you look at that line and it, it doesn't seem to stop. So 
be nice to your grocery <laughs> store associates this holiday season. Seriously. You know? seriously, seriously. Yeah. So, so Kroger is in the process of attempting to merge with Albertsons, another massive mm-hmm. supermarket chain. What effect do you think that will have if it goes through on people like you? Albertsons is non-union and that has been one of Kroger's strengths since it began in Cincinnati. I was very proud to work with Kroger because at one point you had to know someone to come and work for Kroger. It was by recommendation and also you became part of our union. Ever since they have started rolling out marketplace stores, they have claimed that is a different classification, even though it is still under the Kroger heading, so that they can open up marketplace Kroger's without them being union. What that means for the union is instead of spending time trying to fight for us to get more money, more time off, uh, benefits of any kind for associates, they are spending their time winning over stores. Because if you don't have a large group of people that are union, when it comes time for contract negotiation, Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like a strong united front. Also, Kroger has been seeing Walmart's growth in numbers and trying to match that, which I don't think is a good direction for them to be going. I'm no business major, but I can see what's in front of my eyes. When I first started working for Kroger, people would say, we want Walmart's prices and Ucrop's customer service. Now, there is no way to achieve both of those things simultaneously. They knew that. So they wanted a happy medium between those two things. And I think we achieved that for a short time. But now, also, every store that they have taken over, they were incorporating the lessons learned by that store of how to run a successful grocery store, what their customers liked, what their management liked about working for them, Mm -hmm. all of the lessons that that store learned before we bought them. They were incorporating them and making our store better because they learned them. Now those lessons are being thrown out the window and chasing Walmart success by hiring people that have gotten fired from Walmart, buying machinery that is refurbished from Walmart, using an interior designer from Walmart, having us wear clothing that is similar to Walmart employees used to wear putting up signage that is in the same colors as Walmart used to. Because that's definitely what makes people go to Walmart is the colors of the signs. Oh, sure. You know, (laughs) I mean, it's symbolically sending the signal to your brain that you're in a similar sort of store. And so I don't think people want a second Walmart. I think people want Kroger to be Kroger. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the other interview on today's show is is um, also with a Walmart worker. And uh, I mean, the, the problems are the same everywhere, but it's, yeah, it's been incredibly frustrating for them over and over again to, you mm-hmm. know, try to get some basic recognition for their rights and be denied it. And so yes. it must be frustrating to watch your company. COVID, just- COVID was just one more thing on yeah. a list of things that were making working for Kroger untenable. And um, 
and it 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 broke some people people did you know turn off their light and in the middle of their shift just leave and i i don't blame them part of me is saying don't come to work for less money than you deserve worse treatment than you deserve and part of me is saying please come we need the help you know (laughs) so i see both sides of the conflict and I, you know, I wonder about my own future because I've had people tell me recently, stop selling yourself short by working there. Yeah. Yeah. To wrap up um, two years into pandemic, you know, at first we heard a lot about essential workers and essential work, Mm -hmm. but thinking about the last couple of years, like, what is that? What do you think about that term, that idea? Does it mean anything at all after all this time? We are, and we have always been essential. Um, And that recognition was the time to ask for what we need when people were recognizing us as essential. And I don't think we struck when the iron was hot at that point. I think we felt bad because everyone was experiencing some sort of trauma or loss at that point. But when people are recognizing they need you is when you need to ask for what you need. And the customers recognize it, but I'm not feeling that from corporate. And uh, it makes me worry for the future of my company. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Lisa Harris, a Kroger supermarket worker with UFCW Local 400. Retail jobs, like many service jobs, are often described not as skilled work per se, but a job that requires soft skills, people skills, the ability to make people feel comfortable, to look competent when you're answering their question, and to basically act like your only purpose in life is to serve the person right in front of you, even when they're harassing you or threatening you or blaming you for a bad product or some other problem that you had nothing to do with. The pandemic was and remains a force multiplier for all the different forms of exploitation and dehumanization that regularly take place in the retail sector. It's not just surly customers and the stress of dealing with angry demands all day, but the dismissive, sometimes hostile attitudes displayed by managers who are bent on forcing workers to pretend that everything is normal while the world around them spirals into chaos. The lockdowns and COVID precautions that stores had to undertake were not in themselves the sole cause of the rancor that erupted in many retail spaces. Rather, they magnified underlying frustrations and tensions that are endemic to the job. The tensions between impatient customers and exhausted sales associates, that's an obvious one, but there's also the tension between the health concerns and needs of workers on the one hand and the customers and managers that want to present the retail space as a clean, inviting, and peaceful place sometimes by removing protections for workers, like getting rid of mask mandates or barring workers from masking themselves. And there's a tension that lives within the worker between wanting to act like a decent, fair person and having to deal daily with people who seem eager to deny your humanity while still demanding that you work to fulfill their every desire. 
I'm reminded of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters motto, service, not servitude. The demand for servitude is not just a peculiarly American phenomenon, of course. A report on workers in more than 20 countries by Uni Global, the Global Labor Federation, found that there was a substantial rise in violence and harassment against store workers across the globe. For example, quote, a study by SDA Union in Australia found that one in five workers said they had been coughed on or spat on during the pandemic, with 88% of respondents to an SDA survey saying that they had experienced verbal abuse from customers. In the UK, violence from customers has doubled since the pandemic, with nine out of 10 retail workers reporting that they had been victims of abuse, unquote. That wasn't just in the early days of the pandemic. This report came out last June. Not surprisingly, women seemed especially prone to cruel and violent treatment, reflecting gendered patterns of abuse and oppression in the service economy that long predate the pandemic. The report called for not only enacting strict workplace rules against violence, but empowering workers by giving them more control over their working conditions through unions, and specifically addressing gender-based violence at work. You could hear in the voices of workers like Cynthia Murray and Lisa Harris that they have a sophisticated understanding of customers' behavior during the pandemic and how they have to navigate and manage the emotions of people who are understandably scared, anxious, or frustrated. Of course, dealing with management is another matter. And the horrific shooting at a Walmart in Virginia earlier this week is an indication that there are some terrible forms of workplace violence that maybe no one can predict. But in a public-facing job like retail, it's often the quotidian day-to-day abuses that really gnaw away at you. It's interesting to think that most customers that retail workers deal with are also workers. And if they're workers, perhaps they have gone through some of the same occupational stress as the staff person who is waiting on them, yet they still end up taking it out on the one person in the world that they can wield some power over at that moment. The kind of emotional labor that this requires is certainly a skill, but it's not one that's really valued, just taken advantage of. This isn't just about the behavior of mean-spirited customers at Black Friday sales or in the middle of a lockdown. Retail workers' vulnerability to abuse reflects a system that dehumanizes employees. So when Lisa Harris pointed out that workers are always taught to not take anything quote-unquote personally if a customer goes off on them, that's not just a problem with rude people in the store. It's a deliberate management choice to subordinate the humanity of your workers to the whims and pressures of the public even if it means that those workers may get sick, abused, or hurt, because those harms are an externalized cost of doing business. That's it for this episode of Belabored. We are very thankful to Colin Kinneborough and Natasha Lewis for coming through over the Thanksgiving holiday and making us sound good. You can get all of our archived episodes at descentmagazine.org. And if you want to hear more in-depth reporting like this series, please support our work on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And we also want to hear from you about how you're dealing with work and the pandemic or both of those things. If you're working a retail job on this Black Friday or have thoughts about working retail during the pandemic in general, or if you're dealing with long COVID as a result of getting infected at work or trying to start a union at your retail workplace to prevent harassment and abuse, drop us a line. You can get us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Happy Thanksgiving. Stay safe. Talk to you in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>